Good morning. If you're visiting with us, my name is Josh, and I have the privilege of opening the Word this morning and kicking off our Advent series. But before we get into that, I would just like to share my gratitude with our church family. As, as John said, we've been going through this affirmation process, and the way that you all have leaned in and encouraged Emily and I and our family, you've made a, an effort to get to know us. If we haven't met yet, we've been encouraged, and it's been a, an affirmation from the Lord. So thank you. If, if we haven't gotten to know you, we, we long to do that, and so please do come introduce yourself. We'd love to, to share a meal, have you over for dinner, and continue to, to get to know one another. Before we jump in, would you, would you pray with me? Father, you're a giving God. We just read that you give us a child, and that's what we, we begin to celebrate this season. We, we always celebrate, but we, we do it with an intentionality here over the next four weeks. And so we ask as we open your word that you would give to us. Would you give us wonders? Would you give us counsel? And ultimately, would you give us yourself? We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I hadn't talked with John before this sermon, but it will, it will be fitting. A number of years ago, I also had a friend who was diagnosed with cancer. And as common with this sort of diagnosis, he began a, a rigorous agenda of tests, PET scans and CT scans, MRIs and x-rays. While he was being scheduled for these tests, awaiting appointments, then awaiting results, his, his pain was increasing. His body was beginning to, to fail. He was very much in anguish. And I remember sitting with my friend during some of his treatments, walking with him in this journey, and the hardest part was actually not the pain. It wasn't the physical suffering. It was the waiting. Waiting for test results. Waiting for treatment options. Waiting for what the doctor would suggest next. And the thing was, all in all, the, the waiting wasn't very long. This was an urgent case. Things were being expedited. But no matter how short each wait that he endured was, when he was waiting for such important results, such important plans, even the shortest wait was excruciating. Thankfully, most of us are, are not waiting on a cancer diagnosis Though I imagine as we reflect on my friend's journey, we can, we can sense the struggle of waiting, can't we? Might not be cancer, but as each of us lives in this fallen world, experiencing the anguish of sin, certainly some of it our own, but some of it from others, some of it just the pain and suffering of living in a broken world, waiting for the promised hope of Jesus full and final rescue from these bodies of sin and from this world that is broken can be difficult, can't it? We just sang it a moment ago. Do we feel the world is broken? We do. This morning, we're starting our Advent series, He Shall Be Called. Each of the next four weeks, we'll look at the titles ascribed to Jesus in Isaiah 9 that you just heard read. And our aim through this series and my aim this morning is to answer this question. How does treasuring Jesus as the wonderful counselor this week empower our waiting in the midst of the anguish of life? That's going to be the main point of today's sermon. 
Treasuring Jesus as the wonderful counselor empowers our waiting, even in the midst of the anguish of life. But before we jump in, I want to I spend just a, a few minutes thinking about this idea of Advent, what we're doing here the next four weeks. See, I really believe that if we can lean into this season of Advent and, and let it shape our thinking, let it shape our priorities this Christmas season, even let it shape the ways we, we worship, God will meet us in unique and powerful ways this Christmas. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which simply means coming or arriving. Historically, Advent was the four weeks leading up to Christmas when the church would observe Advent with prayer, fasting, and somber anticipation of the birth of Christ. Sounds a little different than the way the world celebrates Christmas, doesn't it? For much of church history, Advent was this season where New Testament believers would try and inhabit the space that Israel found themselves in the thousands of years leading up to Christ's birth. They would reflect on and cling to the promise of a Messiah, a rescuer, who would come to, to rescue his people. But they found themselves waiting Wondering when it would happen, hoping for his arrival, knowing that when he showed up, there would be deliverance and peace and joy. And friends, here's the reality. Like Israel, we too are awaiting Christ's advent. The modern day church finds ourselves in a similar place as Israel in the first advent or coming of Jesus. Israel was in exile waiting and hoping in prayerful expectation for the Messiah that Israel, and, and Israel looked back, right, to this gracious act of the Exodus when they were freed from the bondage of Egypt, praying to God that he would act again, that he'd deliver them once more. And in the same way, we the church look back, not to the Exodus, though, but to Jesus' first coming, waiting and hoping in prayerful anticipation of his second coming, or a second advent. I wonder what it would do for us this year if we really leaned into this posture. Not to try and rush too quickly to Christmas, but to slow down. To let the tension of waiting, the longing and hope of Christ's arrival shape us in deep ways. One author says, to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache. Our deep, wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. Leaning into Advent reminds us deep in our soul that we live in the already and not yet of God's kingdom. There's a tension there, isn't there? Through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he's rescued us from the penalty of our sin. He's made us new creations. We live for and experience his glory in imperfect ways. But leaning into this cosmic ache keeps us hoping for and prayerfully anticipating Jesus' second coming when he will judge the living and the dead, when he will make all things right and he will usher in the perfect, complete, eternal kingdom forever. It's not hard 
for us today to recognize the anguish this life brings. And yet often, we try and rush past it, especially this time of year from Thanksgiving to Christmas. We have so much to do, so many people to see, so many decorations to put up, so many presents to buy. We even seek to relieve the anguish in some of our own ways. Pastor and theologian Timothy Paul Jones said, even on this side of Good Friday, right, the day that Jesus was crucified, and even on this side of Resurrection Sunday, there's brokenness in our world that no cart full of Black Friday bargains can fix. There's hunger in our souls that no plateful of pumpkin pie can fill. There is twisted mess in our hearts that no terrestrial can touch. The whole of creation, the apostle declared, has been groaning together for redemption. And so how do we wait? In the midst of the anguish we all experience in different and varied ways, how do we wait? I want to contend our waiting can be empowered by treasuring Jesus as the wonderful counselor. And I believe we'll treasure him most by leaning into Advent, contemplating this place of waiting, this place of anticipation. May I even suggest we slow down, sit in the tension of the already and not yet, and prayerfully wait for a season so that the light of Jesus would shine even brighter. It's in this slowing down and this prayerful waiting that we now step into the prophecy of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah prophesied to the nation of Israel and particularly the southern kingdom of Judah, some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And the prophecy of Isaiah came in the midst of great sin. It came in the midst of, of great threat and great turmoil, even great anguish that the people of God were experiencing. See, Israel was on the verge of being invaded and ransacked by the rising empire of the Assyrians. Isaiah prophesied that this was due to Israel's sinful rebellion against both God and his people. The northern kingdom of Israel was actually threatening their own brothers and sisters in the southern kingdom of Judah. Justice and righteousness were nowhere to be found in the land, Isaiah said. And it's in the midst of this rebellion that Isaiah warns Judah of what is to come, not only to their enemies, but eventually to them as they continue in their own sinful rebellion. Look with me at Isaiah 8.21. They, Israel will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. That's in a prideful way. They're not turning their faces upward toward God. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Israel is facing real deep darkness. Assyria, the empire that historians have likened to the Nazis of their day, is at their doorstep. Distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish await. This is a tragic moment in the history of God's people. They're on the brink of catastrophe. The, the world around them is sinfully, wickedly pushing in all around. And Isaiah, Isaiah pulls no punches in speaking of its consequences. And yet, 
despite the anguish, despite the darkness, there's this pin of light that starts to emerge. This small but powerful beam of hope starts to become visible. Look down at 9-1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Huh. How is that possible? We should read the end of chapter 8 and all its talk about darkness and anguish and think nothing but gloom, right? A natural byproduct of anguish is gloom. But what Isaiah is saying here is that God is not going to act in natural ways. What's happening in this moment of history is that God is going to intervene in supernatural ways. The Assyrians are going to invade Israel and bring contempt upon the land of the northern kingdom. But Isaiah is saying that this is not the end of the story. In fact, as God so often does, the very land that will be decimated by the Assyrians, it says Galilee of the nations, is exactly where God will begin his great reversal. This is where Jesus first showed up and started doing ministry on the ground. This supernatural reversal of bringing light to darkness. And then in verse 2, Isaiah prophesies that those who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. But notice the language Isaiah is using here. He's speaking in the past tense. And what's interesting about that is at the time of his writing, Israel hadn't even been invaded by Assyria yet. The darkness that he's speaking of hadn't crept across the land, but he's already talking again in the past tense about a light that has shone in the darkness that hasn't even arrived. What is Isaiah doing here? He's using what Bible scholars call the prophetic perfect tense. He's writing in the past tense about things that haven't happened yet because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's seen as being divinely promised. It can be so counted on that you might as well say it's already occurred. This is how God operates. It's how he operates always and forever. His speaking is his doing. His promises are always yes and amen. Friends, this is what God does. He, he shines light into the darkest of places and might I even say, the darker the places, the greater desire God has to shine his light. For Israel then and for us now, there is nowhere that is too dark for the light of Jesus to shine. What that means is, no matter how far gone you feel like your life is this morning, no matter how badly you've been hurt by other people's sin, no matter where you find yourself today, the promise of Advent is that God has sent a light that can penetrate the darkest recesses of any heart, of any life, and of any circumstance. So that means if your marriage is in a dark place or your kids are wandering in darkness or if you've not put your faith in Christ, if you've not trusted him to forgive your sins and take you from this kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light, today is the day. No matter what darkness you're facing today, today is the day that the light has shone. Trust God that he's shining light into the darkness and put your faith in him. And then Isaiah continues, verses three through five, building on the implications of this great light. 
he says that the nation, now remember, this is the nation that's about to be decimated by Assyria. He says this nation will be multiplied, that they will find great joy, their joy will be increased, and all of the atrocities of war will be undone. The yoke, the staff, and the rod, these great war implements will be broken. And then look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fire. The results of war will be dealt with fully. God is going to undo the horrific experiences that Israel's sin is bringing about. But it's at this point, friends, we have to ask ourselves, how in the world can this happen? Assyria at the time was the strongest, most powerful empire of the land. Was God going to send a royal army? Was was he going to to conquer Israel's enemy through a multifaceted war campaign? How was he going to do all of this? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. How does God break the bonds of darkness? How does he relieve anguish? How does he restore order to a broken and chaotic world? It's not through might, is it? It's not through cunning and clever program, is it? How does he do it? It says here he sends a child, a baby son, This Jesus who came 2,000 years ago by virgin birth, lowly and humble, is our rescuer. It would be through his perfect, sinless life, his substitutionary death, that is his exchanging his life for those that he came to rescue. It would be through his resurrection and his ascension that he brought light and life to our darkened, sinful hearts. He shone light into darkness. But the reality is we identified it at the beginning of our time together. Just because we've been saved, just because we've been reconciled to God does not mean we don't experience the anguish of life in a fallen world. Again, do we feel the world is broken? We absolutely do. So how do we wait in faith with hope for Jesus' second advent for his second coming when he will fully and finally restore all things, when he will do away with sin and suffering altogether, when there will never again be a hint of darkness or anguish. How do we wait well? The answer is found in the names by which Isaiah describes this child. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and Prince of Peace. See, when the Bible gives name to something or someone, it most often communicates more than just the name that they're going to go by. In the Bible, names communicate most often the character and essence of something or someone. Right? For example, Isaiah, the prophet we've been looking at this morning, his name means salvation of the Lord, or Yahweh is salvation. And Isaiah was the prophet that boldly went to Israel in the midst of their sin, 
in the midst of their rebellion and said, Yahweh is your salvation. And so his name communicates his, his character and his essence and his actions. And so these four names or titles of Jesus are pregnant with meaning and description of not just what Jesus is to be called, but who he is and what he's come to do. See, through naming this son, Isaiah is giving Israel a prophetic hope in their waiting. God is at work. He's, he's coming. He will rescue and redeem and restore all that has been lost in sin and suffering. And it's the same but different prophetic hope that you and I have. Jesus has come, and yet we wait, still in anguish at times, still in darkness at times, recognizing deep down that cosmic ache that says this is not the way it's meant to be, hoping, not wishing, hoping in the second coming. So let's now look at the first title as Isaiah script ascribes to this promised rescuer and answer the question, how can treasuring Jesus' wonderful counsel empower my waiting even in the midst of anguish and life's difficulties? Jesus is said to be our wonderful counselor. What's interesting, in the Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible, wonderful is not an adjective describing his counsel. It's actually another noun ascribing what Jesus is. He's wonderful, and he's our counselor. And this is actually really helpful because wonderful in this context is is less about adding pleasure or inspiring delight to something as we think wonderful is, and it's far more about Jesus being miraculous, supernatural, and splendid. I don't know if you watch the show Shark Tank, but one of the investors on that reality show is Kevin O'Leary, And he refers to himself as what? Mr. Wonderful. If you know anything about the show, though, Kevin O'Leary is not very wonderful. He's actually quite the opposite. He's the one who makes contestants cry. He's often mocking and deriding their business plans. So why in the world does he call himself Mr. Wonderful? Here's why. Kevin O'Leary does miraculous things with money. Kevin O'Leary is a wonder when it comes to making money, investing in businesses, and increasing his portfolio. And wonderful as O'Leary is with money, taking that name Mr. Wonderful is a bit blasphemous because the Bible speaks of only one person being wonderful, and that is God himself. Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? God rescued Israel from the land of Egypt through extraordinary, supernatural, and miraculous works. And as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus displays the very same character and essence. As this son that Isaiah prophesied would grow, he would put on display his wondrous deeds. We've been studying the book of Luke together, and throughout his gospel, Luke continually points to Jesus being wonderful in his works. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He miraculously feeds the hungry. 
He walks on water. He knows the innermost thoughts of people. And as we'll see in a few months, he miraculously, wonderfully raises from the dead to prove that sin and death are no match for this wonder-working God. But Isaiah doesn't simply point to Jesus' supernatural, miraculous wonder-working. He pairs this noun with another one, counselor. We live in a day and age of unprecedented knowledge and counsel, don't we? From Google to Twitter, Wikipedia to 24-hour news stations, we're inundated with knowledge and counsel. And yet, as we look across our landscape of our day, wisdom, that is knowledge applied, and wonder are lacking, aren't they? But not all counsel we see is, is foolish or lacking. A good counselor is someone who analyzes a situation and gives wise advice, right? We think of the school counselor who, according to their knowledge, tries to give advice on what classes we should take or what university to attend. We think of a marriage counselor who, according to their knowledge, helps us grow in our communication skills so that our relationships might improve. But even with the best counsel, there's limitation to their help, isn't there? That's because they're not the wonderful counselor. They're not a miraculous, wonder-working counselor. As good and as helpful as they are, they lack the perfect supernatural ability to miraculously intervene and apply godly knowledge and wisdom. Think with me about the differences between a good earthly counselor and the wonderful counselor Isaiah is describing. The counselor that we might go visit has to ask about our issue. They often have to poke and prod and dig deep to get out of us what the problem is. And on top of that, it will only be as successful as open and honest as we are. But the wonderful counselor already knows us wholly, completely, and utterly. Jesus is wonderful, miraculous in his knowledge of us. Think about all he knows about us. He knows our past, every secret sin, every hidden hurt, every lost dream that eats away at us. He knows every one of your past experiences, and yet he still calls you to himself. He also knows us in our present reality. He knows the pressures you face, the temptations you're fighting. He knows the anguish that you're experiencing and the trials you're enduring. And he promises to draw near to us even in our present moments. And finally, he knows your future. He knows what lies ahead for you. He has a map of the land, the minefield that is, is life. And he sees your future and he promises to guide you. Jesus is the wonderful counselor who knows you better than you even know yourself and he promises to help you. Listen with fresh ears the words describing our wonderful counselor as caring shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
Jesus knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. And yet, if you're his son or daughter, this is his promise to you. This is his counsel, leading, guiding, shepherding your soul. And then, the wonderful counselor needs no counsel himself. Every counselor we go to see needs to increase in knowledge. They need to grow in their wisdom. I've been in counseling sessions where I feel absolutely stuck as the counselor. Based on the situation in front of me, I have no idea what the way forward is for these people. But Jesus, our wonderful counselor, never gets stuck in guiding us. He's never wringing his hands, anxious, worrying about what the next best course of action is. So unlike the counselors we visit, Jesus knows everything about us, and in his perfect wisdom, he knows exactly how to lead and guide us. But if we understand the wonderful counselor to be all-knowing, but, but we think or believe that he stays out there, distant and away from us, we miss some of the greatest aspect of who he is for us in our waiting. As we consider this Advent season, looking back to Jesus' first coming, awaiting his second, we need to allow his many names to shape our understanding and to motivate our treasuring of him. That's why we're going to look at him as mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace in the coming weeks. But a name of Jesus we cannot miss this morning is his name, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus being Emmanuel brings power and application to him being wonderful counselor. Think about this with me. How can the biblical author say with great authority and conviction that this son born 2,000 years ago, crucified 33 years later, ascended back to heaven 40 days after that, is with us today in this moment? Jesus describes how this is possible in John 14, 6. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper, literally, advocate or counselor, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus is very literally Emmanuel, God with us, through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. See, it's actually better for us to have the spirit of Jesus, the counselor in us, than to have Jesus in the seat next to us. In his incarnation, Jesus could only be at one place physically at any time. But through the spirit, Jesus is wonderfully, miraculously with us in every way at all times. And then he goes on to say how his wonderful counsel helps us through the spirit, John 14, 26. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The counselor will teach us all things. His wonderful counsel will be available to us in all things at all times. But did you notice how he will teach us all things? It's through all that Jesus has said to us. That means that Jesus is not only Emmanuel through the indwelling of his spirit, he's also Emmanuel through his word. Through the counsel and teaching of the spirit and the content and power of his word, Jesus, the wonderful counselor, leads us and guides us. 
It says we commune with him in prayer by the Spirit, abide in him through his word, and enjoy him in Christian community that Jesus works as the wonderful counselor. Right? As we consider Jesus, Emmanuel, as the wonderful counselor for us, our belief and understanding of how the Spirit works in the lives of believers, it comes alive. We understand it with, with power. What I mean is if, if Jesus is with us through his Holy Spirit, and he's a wonderful Remember, miraculous, supernatural, all-powerful counselor, then we can expect, I would say we can even anticipate that as we engage his word and he teaches us and counsels us, we can experience his power in amazing ways. And friends, as we wait in between the advent, as we wait between Jesus' first coming at Christmas and his second coming at the end of, the end of days, we need wonderful counsel. The reality is, and, and we've said it throughout our time this morning, a life with Jesus does not guarantee an anguish-free life. Following Jesus does not guarantee a pain-free, sorrow-free, anguish-free life. And so when the pain does come, when the anguish of life is palpable, when the waiting is becoming unbearable, where will we turn? to the allures of the world that promise escape, to the plethora of knowledge that we find on the internet, or to this wonderful counselor who is always present, always available, who knows everything about us yet will never push us away. How can we wait then in the midst of anguish between the two advents? By treasuring Jesus as the wonderful counselor. But we have to ask this morning, what does it mean to treasure Jesus? And I don't want this to be an abstract cliche that, that remains nebulous out there. I want to, to consider what it means to, to truly treasure Jesus. And I've been pondering that this week. Right? As I wait for the second coming of Jesus, I want to treasure him as my wonderful counselor, mighty God, and so on. But but what does that look like? What does that feel like for us? Think with me about other things you might treasure. Maybe it's a special family heirloom. Maybe it's the last letter a loved one wrote you before they passed on. Maybe it's your mint condition 1964 Pontiac GTO. I had a model of that as a kid. I thought it was the coolest car. I would treasure that. What would it look like to treasure those things? You would probably protect them, right? Keep them close. Keep them in view, not let them get lost or out of sight. I imagine if you treasured them, you would use them. You would display that heirloom. You would read and reread that letter off, and you would probably drive that car, or at least put it in shows for others to enjoy. Right? You wouldn't just throw them in a drawer, keep them in the back of the closet, or park it in a dark garage for no one to ever see or enjoy. I've got to think these treasures would occupy your mind. They'd be a top priority, something you think of often, something you find yourself daydreaming about, maybe even something you tell everyone about. These are just a few of the marks of treasuring something, but I think they get at the heart of treasuring Jesus this Advent is our wonderful counselor. And as I start to, to feel the pain of this life, the anguish of this world, 
as my sin creeps in or I experience the sin of others, the wonderful counselor is ready to meet me. He's ready to show up. And when I see that and I experience that, it increases my treasure. Right? The, the more I just looked at that model of the 1964 Pontiac GTO, the more in love I became. The more I studied its lines and angles, the power under the hood, the sophistication of such a fine automobile, the more enamored I became. And friends, it's the same way with Jesus. The more we simply behold him, the more in love we fall. The more we consider that he's our wonderful counselor, the more we'll treasure him. This isn't a, a sermon with a lot of practical, tangible application. Really, there's two. I just said the first one, it's behold. Behold this Jesus. Study him. Long for him. Gaze at him. And then the other is, is connected. I would encourage us to use this Advent season to slow down and treasure Jesus and his word. And I'd commend to you a few resources we have on our bookshelf that are meant to help guide our treasuring of Jesus this Advent season. There's a, a family devotion, The Light Before Christmas. There's a, a, another devotion, The Advent of the Lamb of God. But these are phenomenal resources for us to, to open in the morning with a good cup of coffee, to slow down, push against the, the craziness and the hustle of this season, and behold Jesus. So I'd encourage you, we have these out on the bookshelf. Grab one for you and your family and, and slow down. Treasure Jesus. But know this. The extent to which he is the wonderful counselor does not rise and fall based on your treasuring of him. I'm going to say that again because it's crucial for us to understand this this morning. To the, the extent to which he is the wonderful counselor does not rise and fall to the extent in which you treasure him. What I mean is, his wonder, his power, his counsel, his grace, his mercy, his goodness, his kindness is not in any way dependent upon your goodness. It's not dependent on you having it together or being nice and neat or treasuring him perfectly. Here's what Advent tells us. This is what Isaiah 9 tells us. We cannot do anything to mess this up. You might feel like a complete failure coming in here this morning. You might feel like a mess in your mediocrity, in your underachieving, even in your disobedience. But as we read here this morning, friends, is that as the one who came to us, we are his treasured mess. Let that comfort you this morning. There are so many ways. You can ask Emily. There are so many ways I am a complete and utter failure. But you know what? I'm his failure. Jesus loves me in my failing and he loves you in the midst of your failing. Why? 
Because he's Emmanuel. He's with us. That's his decision. He shines light in the darkness. He shows up as the wonderful counselor in our hardest moments. He gives joy and peace and hope when the waiting becomes too difficult, when it's completely unexplainable, when I can't wait up good waiting on my own. I can't muster it up myself. He's the one that shows up. See, friends, you're not waiting alone. In between the two advents, you're not alone. You're not forgotten in your waiting. Despite the anguish, despite the difficulty of life, despite our attempts at self-sabotage, we can count on the wonderful counselor to empower and transform our waiting. Why? Because of how good we are? Because of how wonderful we are? No. Because it's who he is. Look, look at the end of verse 7. Here's where we're ending. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Not you, not me, not your cleverness or my attempt at religion. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will do this. So let's treasure him while we wait for a second advent. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus, the wonderful counselor who knows everything about us, who works mighty wonders, who's miraculous and supernatural in his intervention of our lives and who guides us and leads us and never forsakes us. Would we treasure that son today? Would you help us slow down? Would you help us behold him? And would we know that we are not alone in the anguish of life? Jesus, you're Emmanuel, you're with us, and we shall rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.